Terry and Natasha, you and I will be playing tennis later. So uh, <laughs> glad you brought your rackets and, and those kind of things. But it's always a pleasure to be here with my CHCC family. Love you guys to death. Um, my wife could not be here. She's fellowshipping elsewhere at the cathedral, known as FedEx Field, at the Commander's Day going to Eagles. So uh, she's fellowshipping in her own way. Y'all pray for her. And uh, I'll be here fellowshipping with you guys. But let, let me pray for the word, and then we'll get right into it. Lord God, indeed, it is good to gather together to sing praises to your name, to think about um, everything that we've been singing about thus far, how you've created the heavens and the earth, understanding that no praise could ever truly be worthy of you, Lord God, because our lips are not capable of giving you all the praise and all the worship and all the honor that you truly deserve. But Father, you're, you're so kind and so loving that you accept our praises as small as they are. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We understand that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, in it, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. And so this afternoon, Lord God, I just ask that you would simply use your word to speak to your people. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so over this summer at ARC, we had a sermon series on prayer. So we had a lot of guest preachers come in. So, you know, T does probably 98.75% of all the preaching. But in the summer, we like to give him a, a, some time off. So this summer, we had a brother come in and he preached out of uh, James 5 about the prayer of faith. And you guys may know that section of scripture talks about if anyone is sick, let him call the elders. And if they offer the prayer to faith, that person shall be healed. And so usually after a sermon on a Sunday, as we're driving back home, uh, what our family does in the, uh, the minivan is we have a sermon review, right? So we talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, what we learned, any questions that we might have, and we do that until we get home. So on this particular Sunday, after the gentleman preached on James 5, I was reminded of one of the many reasons why I love my wife, and there are tons of reasons why I love her. But one of those reasons is she's not afraid to ask tough questions of God's word. So as we're driving home and we're thinking about this particular passage of scripture, my wife's question was, what happens or how do we understand when we offer a prayer of faith for someone to be healed and that person's not healed? Because when you read the scripture, it reads, James 5.15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And so my wife's question was, what happens when that doesn't happen, when that person is prayed for, but is not raised up, right? So my wife is a smart cookie. She understands that in one way, shape, or form, whether in this life or the next, that person is healed. But she also understands that usually when we are offering those kind of prayers, our prayers is that person is healed on this side of glory. And so she wanted to know what happened. So I think her mind immediately went to a friend of ours who died several years ago of cancer named Debbie. I know my mind immediately went to my mother who died five years ago of cancer. So I prayed for my, my mother. The pastor of ARC prayed for my mother. The pastor of my mother's church in Philly prayed for my mother. But yet and still, she was not healed and she died. So what are we here to make of this? When prayers go up for the person to be healed and they're not healed, did the prayers not have the right words? Did the person praying lack faith? Or even worse, has God's word in some way failed us? And so my response to Moore's wonderful question was, none of those things are true, but what is true is that when those prayers goes up and that person is not healed, it's not that God's word has failed, but it's that God's sovereignty is at work. 
And so what I want us to understand today that behind every command in scripture to pray, to include what we see in James 5, behind every prayer request that you or I have ever made in our entire lives, where God answers with a yes, with a no, or a not yet, is God's sovereignty. And so this afternoon, what I want us to talk about, just one simple question is, what role does God's sovereignty play in my prayer life? So I'll say that one more time. What role does God's sovereignty play in my prayer life? And so we're going to answer this question by stepping through 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. So in verse 7, Paul sets the stage for us by defining what it is that God's sovereignty is. Then in verse 8, Paul shows us that God's sovereignty is an encouragement to our prayer life. And then finally, in verses 9 and 10, Paul is going to show us that God's sovereignty is a comfort to our prayer life, even when he says no to what I've been praying for. All right. So one question, what role does God's sovereignty play in our lives? First, we're going to define it. Second, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is an encouragement to our prayers. And then third, we're going to see that God's sovereignty is a comfort to our prayers, even when he says no. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 7 through 10. And I'll be reading it from the ESV. And if you turn there, you'll find these words. So to keep, I'm sorry, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so we came into this in verse 7, and what I want us to understand is that to truly get the context of these particular verses, we have to go all the way back to chapter 10, where the apostle is starting a large, larger argument about uh, some, some false teachers that have come into Corinth, and they're throwing shade at Paul and his ministry. So in chapter 10, Paul is letting them know that his authority comes from God himself. <laughs> Then as he takes that argument through chapter 11, he calls out these false teachers for bringing another gospel. And then at the end of chapter 11, Paul actually puts his sufferings on display as proof of his apostleship. So in verse 11, towards the end, Paul reminds them that he's been robbed, he's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been beaten, all for the sake of the gospel so that it will go forth. And then as he transitions into verse 12, he goes from talking about his sufferings kind of on the low end, talking about on the high end, certain visions and revelations that he's seen. So right before these particular verses in verse 7, Paul talks about he was taken up to the third heaven, how he heard things that he cannot repeat, how he was caught up to paradise. And then that lands us right into verse 7, where we're told that God sends a messenger of Satan to keep him from being conceited. Now, before we talk about how God's sovereignty works in our prayer lives, I think it's really important that we first define what God's sovereignty is. And that's exactly what Paul does for us in verse 7. So in verse 7, we read these words. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, 
a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And right there in chapter 7, I think Paul gives us a really good working definition of God's sovereignty, which is this. God's declared purpose achieved in the way that, God's de that God decides. So I'll say that one more time. Paul in verse 7, I believe, defines God's sovereignty as God's declared purpose achieved in the way that God decides. So notice God's purpose in verse 7, and I already mentioned it that keeping Paul from being conceited because of these visions and revelations that he's received. So in verse 7, we start off with the purpose, and we end with the purpose, and then in the middle, we're told what God uses to achieve that purpose. A thorn, I'm sorry, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. Now there are tons and tons of people who have speculated about what this thorn is or what this messenger is, and I don't think that's relevant or important at all. If it was important for us to know, Paul would have wrote it for us, right? So we don't need to know, but what we need to know is this, that this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, was actually given by God. We know it was given by God because it was used for a good purpose. Now, before we keep going with this, what I want us to do is to quickly step back, and I want us to survey the Bible. And what I want us to see is that to make sure we have a proper understanding that what we are noticing in Paul's life is actually true for everything in the entire universe. So the Bible teaches that God's declared purpose in one way that he rules everything in the entire universe. So what we see in Paul's life is kind of a microcosm of what we see in the entire universe. So in Proverbs 16, 4, we read these words. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So in creation, God determined the purpose for every single thing that he created. Even the wicked are wicked by God's sovereign purpose. Or in Psalm 135, verse 6, we read these words from the psalmist. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Nothing in existence is outside of God's sovereign purpose. He does exactly what he pleases, where he pleases, whenever he pleases. Amen? Amen. But not only that, the Bible teaches that God's sovereign purposes always come to pass. So in Ephesians 1.11, where Paul is speaking about God's sovereignty and salvation, Paul writes these words. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, all things, according to the counsel of his will. So Paul is saying it's not just salvation that God works according to his will, but all things work according to God's purposes. And also in Proverbs 16, 30, we read these words. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even the lottery in one sense is God's lottery. Even when we see people on the corner throwing dice, it's not random. It's not chance. Chance and luck do not exist in God's universe. Every decision comes from the Lord. And then finally, God's use of Satan in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 shows us a very important aspect of God's sovereignty, which is this. God has the ability to use anything that he desires to achieve his sovereign purposes because he owns everything. And so what you'll see on the screen is that, one, God can use nature. And so we see that clearly in Job chapter 35, verses 25 
through 26, where God is speaking to Job out of the whirlwind. And he says, who has left, I'm sorry, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where there is no man, on the desert in which there is no man? So God is showing that he can use rain to send it wherever he pleases. But not only can God use nature, he can also use these sinful actions of man to achieve his sovereign good purposes. So in Genesis 20:50, as Joseph is reflecting on being sold into slavery by his brothers, Joseph says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph is showing us that even though his brothers intended evil, evil actions by selling their own kinfolk into slavery, God somehow, some way, was able to use that evil action for his good sovereign purposes. Or even when we think about the crucifixion of Christ in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 23, as Peter is talking about the crucifixion, we read these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See what Peter is saying here is that the crucifixion was God's definite plan. It was his good purpose, but it was carried out by the voluntary, willful, sinful actions of man. So Peter blames the sinful action on what he calls lawless men and not God. Right. So this is true whenever God decides to use sinful actions of men. Sinful men are responsible for sinful actions, even if it's God's sovereign plan. And I'll make a full confession. I have no idea how all that works. I have no idea how God can take voluntary actions by me that are wrong and still use those voluntary sinful actions to achieve his good sovereign purposes. I have no idea how that works. But what I do know is that the Bible says he does it. And the Bible presents both as being true without a contradiction. So even though I have no idea how it works, because it's in God's word and God's word is true, I believe it. Even though it absolute, absolutely, it blows my mind how he can do that, but he does. So God can use nature, he can use the sinful actions of man, and he can use everything in between to achieve his sovereign purposes that he has set for everything in the world. Amen? Amen. So as we come back to 2 Corinthians 12, God is showing us through Paul in verse 7 what is true of all creation, that God is sovereign over everything. He rules it all. And as part of his sovereign rule, God declares his sovereign purposes for everything that he creates. And those sovereign purposes always come to pass, always by the means that he decides. And as we see in verse 7, even a messenger of Satan. And so what I want to do, I think it's really important that before we go to step eight, that we stop and we consider a couple of questions. Because I think as we think about God's sovereignty and how it works, as we see it in scripture, and we think about our prayer life, I think two questions come to the forefront. So if God's purposes always come to pass in the way that he decides, I think a logical question is, 
should we pray? Number two, if God's sovereign purposes always come to pass in the way that he decides, do our prayers actually matter? And so for the first question, I think that's a slam dunk yes. So as we look through the, the, through the Bible, it is clear that we are commanded to pray. The Bible puts forth God as sovereign, and he also puts forth that we are commanded to pray. So we see that clearly in Philippians 4, 6, where uh, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, Paul says, Pray without ceasing. So on one hand, we can answer that because we know that the Bible commands us to pray. But by modeling, Jesus also instructs us to pray. So in John 17, that entire chapter is a prayer from Jesus to his Father as he prays for us as believers. Matthew 26, 36 to 56, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples who keep falling asleep before he goes to the cross, and Jesus is in constant prayer. And even before he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11, Jesus says a prayer. So whether it's by command or whether it's by the life of Jesus, we should be praying even though God is sovereign. So the Bible never allows God's sovereignty to be used as an excuse not to pray. But the second answer, or the second question rather, do our prayers matter? Do they accomplish anything? And the answer to that is just as well. The Bible clearly teaches that God hears our prayers, but not only does he hear them, he actually responds to them. So 1 Peter 3.12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then in 1 John 5.14-15, John takes it one step further. He says not only does God hear our prayers, but he actually responds to them as well. So in 1 John we read, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So he hears us and he responds to us. So in the same way that God decided to use a messenger of Satan or the action of Joseph's brothers to achieve his purposes, God in his sovereignty can use our prayers to do the same. And so in this way, God's sovereignty functions as an encouragement for us to pray. And this is exactly what we see in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 12. And if you turn there, you'll see that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So that this that Paul is pleading about is that thorn that we talked about earlier, that messenger from Satan. And the crazy thing is Paul knows that it was sent to him by God. So a lot of things happen in our lives and we have no idea why they're happening. But Paul is very clear this was sent into his life for a very specific purpose. And even though he knows that God sent it to him, he still prays. But the question is, why would he pray if he knows that God sent this? Because he knows that God listens to his prayer and he can use them if he so desires. So he prays, but notice how he prays. He prays fervently, right? Paul says that he pleaded with the Lord. He prays specifically that the thorn would leave him and he prays repeatedly. So he prays until God answers him in verse 9. So Paul understands that God's sovereignty is the only reason why his prayers actually matter. Because he knows that the same God that sent this messenger of Satan 
is the same God that can take it away. And so the same is true for you and I. So when hard things come into our lives, it may surprise us. We may not know where they're coming from. We may not know why they're there, but it never surprises God. So God is not only sovereign, but he's also omniscient. He knows all things before they ever happen. He knows about every hardship that will ever come into our lives. But not only that, in one sense, everything that happens in our lives, even the hard things, have been given to us by God to achieve his very good purposes. So when those hard things come into our lives, by God's sovereign hand, Paul shows us that we should drop to our knees and pray. So earlier, Pastor Brock read for us in Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 23 to 21. I'm going to encourage us to turn there. You have your Bibles, and I hope you do. So earlier in Acts 4, we picked up the action at verse 23. But earlier in uh, around verse 1, we're told that Paul, I'm sorry, Peter and John have been arrested by the Jewish authorities. They've been arrested because they've been teaching and proclaiming Jesus' name. They had just healed a lame man in uh, chapter 3. And they are throwing everything into chaos in a good way by preaching and teaching in the name of Christ. And so the authorities there throw them into prison. And so right before they release them, they interrogate them. They want to know everything about them. And then they threaten them. They warn them that they should no longer preach or teach in the name of Christ. And that's where we pick it up at verse 23. So when they hear, right, these are talking about the friends there, they immediately go into prayer. So verse 24 says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said. So immediately after receiving that bad news, instantly they corporately enter into a prayer meeting so in second corinthians we see paul doing the prayer but sometimes things come into our life as a group as a congregation as a community and when those things happen even by god's sovereign hand that we'll see in the next few verses corporately together we gather together and we pray but notice how they pray so in verse 24 we see immediately they address god as the sovereign lord so they, or rather, they acknowledge his sovereignty. They acknowledge the hostile ministry environment that they're in. And in verse 28, they attribute it to God's hand and plan. But through Pilate and through uh, Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles in verse 27. So again, we see that it's God's sovereign hand and plan, but it's the simple actions of man that have caused this hostile environment where Peter and John are being arrested. So they acknowledge the sovereignty of God, they acknowledge the simple actions of man, and then they ask the same sovereign Lord that used Herod and Pilate to crucify Jesus, they pray to that same sovereign Lord to grant them boldness to continue to speak in the name of, God, in the, name of the Lord. And as we keep reading through that into verses 30 and 31, we're told that God answers that prayer exactly how they asked it. So they are given boldness by being filled with the Holy Spirit to continue to preach the gospel. And so the Bible is full of answered prayers just like this, where God's children pray, God hears, and God answers, all while accomplishing his sovereign purposes. So whether we look at Acts 4, or whether we look at 2 Corinthians 12, we see that God's sovereignty is an encouragement for us to pray. And so the same should be true for us. 
When we think of the fact that God's purposes are always achieved using the means that he decides, and we understand that God has determined that our prayers can function as one of those means, we should always pray more and not less. So to pray is not only disobedient to the biblical commands that we saw earlier, it's also foolish not to pray when we understand that certain blessings from God will only come through our prayers. So then the question before us would be, what does it look like for us to pray more? And what I want to do is just give two ways that we can do that. One is in the negative, and then one is going to be in the positive. So one, we have to pray without blockers. So there are certain prayers in the Bible that God has already told us he will never answer. There are certain prayers that we would offer that we already know God will say no to. So if God has already told us in his word that he will say no, we should never pray those kind of prayers. It would actually be stupid to pray a prayer that we already know God will say no to. So what I want to do is I think I have four blockers I just want us to quickly look at. So that first blocker is praying from sinful motives. And you'll see that in James chapter 4, verses 2 to 3, where James writes, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you do not, I'm sorry, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So God will never answer this kind of prayer. Instead, as James says later on, we need to submit ourselves to God. We need to purify our hearts. And then we need to mourn over our sin and then repent. In other words, James is saying before we offer a, a, a prayer from sinful motives, we have to get our heart right so that our request will be right. That second blocker, again, from God's word, we find in Isaiah 1.15, where God says he will never answer a prayer from a sin-filled life. So in Isaiah 1.15, we read these words. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So again, God's not looking for a perfection. There's only one perfect person, and that's Jesus. But a life dominated by sin, a life defined by sin, God is letting us know in Isaiah that if that's true of us, that he's not going to hear our prayers. So again, God is sovereign, but he's also loving. And it wouldn't be loving for God to ignore my sin problem so that he can listen to my prayers. That's the argument that he makes in Hebrews 12. But God goes on to tell them in verse 16 of Isaiah 1 how they can remove this blocker. And there he tells them, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. In other words, repent, bear fruit, in, in, uh, bear fruit of that repentance, and then we can humbly and confidently come before God in prayer. That third blocker that we don't want to have when we pray is offering a prayer from doubting. And we see that clearly in James 1, 6-7. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Basically, we should never doubt when we ask anything of God. 
when we pray, we should pray in faith, believing that God is able to do whatever it is that we're asking him to do. And then finally, that fourth blocker that I want us to track is that if we are not a Christian, God will never hear our prayers. So earlier I read for us in 1 Peter 3.12, where Peter writes, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his eyes are open to their prayers. I'm sorry, his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if we're not in Christ, if we're not Christians, we're actually enemies of God. And so I like to tell this story about this uh, unfortunate war in Ukraine against Russia, where one time Vladimir Putin said that he was willing to negotiate with the president of Ukraine while the war was happening. And the president of Ukraine said, I don't want to negotiate. I will not sit down with Putin until he puts his arms down. Until he lays his weapons down, I will not hear from this man. And God is saying the same thing, that as long as we're enemies, as long as we are outside of Christ, if we have not turned to him in repentance and faith, then we are his enemies. And First Peter tells us that he does not hear our prayers. But the good news of the gospel that we find in the Bible is that God has provided a way for us to no longer be his enemy. This is why he sent Christ into the world, to, send, to live a perfect life, to go to the cross and suffer God's wrath on my behalf for the sins that I committed. And the Bible says that he was then buried and raised three days later for my justification. So today, if I'm not a Christian, all I need to do is to repent and trust in what God has already done for the forgiveness of my sins. So if I do that, if I call out to God in prayer to save my soul, that is always a prayer that God will hear. And that kind of prayer is not just good for my prayer life, but it's also good for my soul because I know that I would spend eternity with him in heaven. So God in his word has made it known what, play, what prayers will be blocked. We should never pray those prayers. Instead, we should remove the blockers and approach God humbly and with confidence. So that's the negative aspect of how we should pray to a sovereign God. But the positive is this way, that we should always pray according to God's will. And we see that clearly in John 14, 13 to 14, where John writes, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now here's the thing about asking in Jesus' name. That usually the way we do that is we will pray, and then we will end the prayer with, in Jesus' name. Right? I do that myself. I think that's a learned behavior. I don't think it ever taught me. I kind of heard people pray, and then I do the same thing. That is actually not what Jesus has in mind at all. Right? Because if that was true, right? If that was true then I would be able to pray and say in Jesus' name, and everything that I ever pray, if I add in Jesus' name at the end, should be done. But that's not actually what he means. Now, there's nothing wrong with ending a prayer in Jesus' name, but that's actually not what he means. So what I want to do is look at a verse I think I read earlier, which is 1 John 5.14, to provide much-needed context. And when we turn there, we see this. If we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. Basically, what I want us to understand is that when Jesus says earlier in John 14, if you prayed in my name, it's the same thing that we read in God's word in John, in 1 John 5. So asking in Jesus' name 
and asking according to his will are the same exact thing, said in two different ways. That makes sense? So asking in Jesus' name is essentially saying that if it was Jesus saying it himself, that he is declaring his will. So when we pray and it aligns with God's will, we are confident that whatever we're praying, it will be done. So how do we do that? Well, first, we use God's revealed word. So in his word, he has already told us things that he wants for us. So if God has revealed his word or revealed his will in his word, and we pray according to that revealed will, we are confident that whatever we're praying for is the will of Christ, and it will be a yes. So I think it was earlier this year at ARC, we did a whole sermon series through the book of Leviticus. And holiness is all up and down through that book. So we know that God wants us to be holy. So if I am praying to God for my holiness, he will always answer it because he wants me to be holy. Wisdom, earlier we read from James 1, we know that God wants to give us wisdom. And all I have to do is ask for it. So if I'm praying to God for wisdom, I know that's his will for my life. He will give me wisdom. Earlier I referenced from James 17, and one thing that is consistent through James 17 is that Jesus, before he goes to heaven, is praying to God the Father that you and I, as his people, would be unified. That is God's desire for his church. So if I am praying for unity of his church, it will happen because that is God's desired will for my life. But this is the tricky part. Most of the situations that we have that happen in our lives, we don't find specifically here, right? Should I take that job? Should I marry that man? In my case, heal my mother. I don't know if that's God's will for my life. So when that happens, we pray the same way that Paul prays in 2 Corinthians. We pray fervently, specifically, and repeatedly, and we offer those prayers in faith, trusting God to use our prayers to achieve the purposes that he has for my life. Make sense? Good. So God's sovereignty should encourage us to pray because we understand that he can use our prayers to bless us. He can, but he is not obligated to use our prayers. So what happens, right, this is how we started the sermon, what happens when God says no or not yet? Have our prayers failed? God's response in verse 9 helps us understand that when he says no, our prayers haven't failed. It simply means that his good purposes for my life have succeeded. So in viewing our prayers from this perspective, God shows us that his sovereignty is a comfort to my prayer life, even when he gives me a grace-filled no. So hear this again from 2 Corinthians 9, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. One commentator reflecting on this verse said these words, God promised Paul that in the midst of weakness and frustration which this thorn produced, he would find God's power all the more present. Having heard such a word from God, Paul is able to boast about weakness 
not because he enjoys them, but because he knows that the power of Christ rests upon him in his weakness. Or think about it this way. If Romans 8.28 is true, and if indeed all things work together for my good, including God's no to my prayer, why would I want a yes? Why would I want something for my life that God in his sovereignty doesn't? Now, does it hurt? Does, when God says no, does it hurt? It does hurt. Hardships hurt. Persecutions hurt. Pro- prolonged singleness, when I want to mate, that hurts. Unemployment hurts. Cancer hurts. The no's hurt physically, they hurt spiritually, and they hurt mentally. And there's no denying that. And we should never ignore the pain that we feel when God tells us no. Because Peter doesn't do it. I mean, he makes a long list in verse 10 of all those things that he's suffering. And if Peter doesn't ignore it, we shouldn't ignore it. I'm sorry, I called the man Peter. If Paul doesn't ignore it, we shouldn't ignore it. But we should accept the no the same way that Paul does. Knowing that God provides grace through the power of Christ, which is all I need to endure, while God uses his no for the sovereign purposes that will always come to pass for his glory and for my good. So then the question is, how do we do that? How do we accept God's grace-filled no? And I want to suggest three different ways, and then I'll get out your way. Number one, and we see that clearly in verse 9, God promised his grace, so we should look for it. God will always give us exactly what we need to endure whatever hardship comes our way. And notice there that it says that God's grace is sufficient. It is enough. So if God hasn't given us what we think we need to endure, guess what? We don't need it. But we can trust that God provides enough for what we need to endure, and he always will. Since God has promised to give us his grace, we should look for it. Number two, and we see this in verses 9 to 10, that God promised his power. So we should expect it, we should pray for it, and then we should boast in it. One of the great joys of being a pastor is when I do new membership interviews. I can't tell you how many times I've been blown away, but blown away rather, by the testimony of the saints as they explain to me their testimonies, their trials, their tribulations. I mean, folks have been through a lot, and most of the people I talk to, they don't look like what they've been through. And it's only because of the power of God in their lives. And the same is true for you and me, that when God tells us no, he always gives us his power with that no. So we should expect to receive it. We should pray for it. And that's one of the prayers that God will answer because he's already told us he'll give us his power. And then once he gives it, just like Paul, we ought to boast about how good God has been to us, even in the midst of our trial. And then number three, we should be content because God's got it. Notice how verse 10 starts. Paul says, for the sake of Christ. So Paul understands that God is using him and his suffering for his divine sovereign purposes. And as we saw earlier, God is sovereign over everything, everywhere, at all times, including our weaknesses, our insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. God is in control. And we have to trust that God is in control more than what our circumstances want to whisper to us that he's not. So just like Paul, we have to see God's no and what comes with it as an opportunity for God to use us in our hardships for his glory. So as I conclude, 
we started this sermon by talking about Moore's question on how to understand James 5 in the prayer of faith and what happens when that prayer of faith is not answered. And I think, at least I hope anyway, that from James, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, we're able to see God's answer, that God is sovereign, that everything in the universe, including the prayer of faith in James 5, operates under God's sovereignty, where his purposes are always carried out in the manner that he chooses. So Paul shows us that God's sovereignty should be an encouragement for us to pray when the trials come. Whether it be a messenger from Satan sent to harass, a hostile ministry environment like we saw in Acts 4, whether it's cancer in our bodies, or whether it's filling the blank with, every, with, with whatever you're dealing with now, we should pray because God can use our prayers. And that's the best way to understand James 5.15, and it's the best way to understand our own prayers that we offer in faith. We offer them to a sovereign God whose purposes for his children are always good. But we also understand that his purposes for me may come in the form of a no to my prayer. And if God decides that a no is the best way for him to achieve his good purposes for my life, then I accept this in the same way that Paul did, knowing that God will comfort me by providing his grace and power for the journey to endure whatever hardships come my way. So let's pray more and not less, knowing that our sovereign God hears our prayers and uses them for his good purposes. Let's pray. Lord God, even as we consider prayer, as we come to you in prayer, we take great comfort in knowing that you are in control. We take great comfort in knowing that you are sovereign. We take great comfort in knowing that all your purposes for your children are always good, even when they come through a no to whatever prayer that I've asked. Father, you know our hearts, you know our lives, you know the trials and, and tribulations that we are currently going through. You know our prayer lives because we offer our prayers to you. Father, this morning we pray for the grace. We pray for the power of Christ in our lives to endure whatever it is that you bring our way. Father, we ask that we would be able to be content with whatever hardships we have, knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that you are in control. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.